So a couple of weeks ago, I was reading a book uh, called Ultra Learning, and it's all about how you can learn really intense stuff in a short amount of time. And part of the book, what was interesting is it's talking about how people learn, and how people learn might be different than what you would expect. And so in one of the studies that the book referenced, it was a study done by a person named Jeffrey Carpickle and Janelle Blunt. And what they did was they got groups of students together, and they taught them all the same material, and then they broke them up into four different types of study groups. They were given, they were taught the same material, they were given the same amount of time of time to study, but they were given different tools to study with. And so one of the groups was, uh, they were allowed to review the text one time. So they all were in the class. They were given some material to study. They were able to go over it one time, and then they just had to talk about it. That was it. Uh, the second group was able to review the material repeatedly. So for the whole amount of study time, they could have everything in front of them. They could talk through it. Uh, the third group was free recall, which means they were, giving, they were given no study material, and they were not allowed to bring any notes with them. So all they were allowed to do was try to remember what they were taught and talk about it. And then the fourth group was concept mapping, where they were kind of kind of given this material that kind of linked how the material was together. Um, but they weren't giving, like, they couldn't read anything or anything like that, so they used concept mapping. And then, before they tested the students, they asked them to predict how they would do on the test. And unsurprisingly, uh, the, repeat, the, the group number two that was able to re re review the material as much as they wanted, they thought they would do the best. Uh, the group that thought they would do the second best was the single study group, so they were given the material to look over one time, and then they had to put it away and talk about it. The concept mapping group thought they would come in third. And then the free recall group that was giving, given no study material thought they would come in last. Uh, and then, of course, they were giving the results. They did this with lots of different groups of people. And they found that when it came to the test time, the results were not even close. The free recall group remembered almost 50% more than everybody else. Now, the book, again, if you read the book, it talks about why that's the case and how human, humans learn, and it's different than how we assume, and so it talks about why free recall is actually the better uh, concept, but that's not at all how you would expect to study. That's not at all how you would expect to learn new material is by doing it that way. And today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus talk and teach his disciples about what it looks like to be great in God's kingdom and what he's going to say, what it takes, and what you must do is not at all going to be what you and I would have assumed Jesus would say. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, if you don't have one, there's a black one around you, and you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you if you do not own a Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the stories, the books about the story of the life of Jesus, and learning and kind of learning and growing from Mark as we see what Jesus did. If you were here last week, uh, we saw that Jesus uh, heals, heals a, a man's son, um, when nobody else could do it, when his disciples couldn't do it, and he was teaching and, and explaining to his disciples why they couldn't heal this man's son, even though they'd been able to heal others, and it's because they had, re they had lost focus on what was most important. It wasn't on them and what they do and what they thought. It was about prayer and turning to God and asking God to move on their behalf. And with that in mind, we'll continue the story. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Here's how it begins. It says, then they, being Jesus and his disciples, left that place and made their way through Galilee 
but he, being Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. Jesus did not want anyone to know they are there. He, again, is desiring secrecy. Now, we're not told why. Uh, it's likely because he has uh, gotten a lot of opposition, even in the passage we read last week, from the uh, religious leaders and even from the Roman government officials. And so they're trying to move through without causing a fuss. Um, this is also going to be Jesus' last time in Galilee, which is on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, until after his resurrection. Um, now we see him only passing through the area he once lived, as from here on out, he is making his way with his disciples to Jerusalem, where he's ultimately going to give his life. And so they're trying to pass through. Here's what it says next, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now, this is the second, what is known as the Passion Predictions in the Gospel of Mark. The first one was in Mark chapter 8. We read a couple of weeks ago. Now, this, where Jesus is trying to prepare and tell his disciples what is going to happen to him, that he is going to be killed and he is going to resurrect three days later. Now, as a side note, in our translation of, of what we use here at New City Church, it says that the, uh, he is going to be betrayed. Um, depending on what Jesus is referring to here, that actually might not be the best translation. You could also translate that this as he was handed over. Over. And the reason we would say that is because oftentimes in Judaism, uh, in order to not use God's name incorrectly, Jews would often not mention God's name at all. And so they would say certain ways and they would reference certain things so you would know that they, that they are talking about God without actually mentioning his name. And that's probably what's going on here. Uh, what's likely happening here is that Jesus is explaining to his disciples that God is going to give him over to, to, to humanity, that God is going to allow this to happen. And so if Jesus is referencing humanity, humans, then they obviously betray Jesus. But if he's referencing God the Father here, God the Father does not betray Jesus, right? He sent Jesus uh, knowing what was going to happen. And now God is going to hand over Jesus to the rest of humanity so that mankind can do with Jesus um, what they will. And so again, he explicitly mentions it to his, uh, the first time he mentions it in Mark chapter 8, he talks about the role his disciples, or the Jewish people rather, are going to play in handing him over. The third time, the next time he'll mention it, he's going to reference uh, the Gentile role, the, the role that the Gentiles and the Romans have to do with it. And here he's mentioning that God is allowing this to happen. And then he says this, verse 32, here's how the disciples respond. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Now, if you've been with us, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, there is no world in which the original disciples or, the or, or Jews at that time uh, thought that the Messiah was going to be killed. So we've read about it. We've talked about it. We can kind of be like, how do they not understand this? Again, if there is someone going to come and to liberate God's people, how else would you do it but by force and by domination, right? And if you die, you cannot reign. So they have no concept of understanding how this can actually happen. In fact, in the Old Testament, uh, there is reference to when the Lord returns. Uh, and of course, we know this as when Jesus returns a second time. There is reference to the resurrection of the dead, how all those who are in the Lord, who honor the Lord, or in our case, are followers of Jesus, are welcomed into his kingdom. So there is this idea of resurrection in the Hebrew Bible, but there's not this idea of a single person resurrecting. So again, this is really confusing to them. But it makes not, 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 doesn't make sense, but they don't want to ask. Now, you might be like, why don't they want to ask? If you remember in Mark chapter 8, after the first pa passion prediction, what does Peter say to Jesus? We're not going to let this happen to you, right? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So that's just encouraging, right? He says, Peter, you're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of God. 
man. So with good intention, Peter's like, no, Lord, we are going to protect you. We're going to fight with you. This is not going to happen. But of course, the disciples don't fully understand what Jesus has come to do. And so likely thinking about the last time Jesus mentioned this, they're afraid to say something wrong. And so they don't ask any questions. And then it says this, verse 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, another area on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, this is likely Peter's house at this point. They're probably back in Peter's house. He asked them. So Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Right, so they're traveling from Galilee to Capernaum, uh, likely again at Peter's house. On along, along the way, of course, they talk about a lot of things. And so when they get there, Jesus wants to ask them about an argument that his disciples were clearly having among themselves as they were traveling. Right, But then what happens is the disciples don't want to answer because what have they been arguing about? Who's the best? I'm the, like, who's the better? Who deserves the most glory? Who deserves the most honor? It's kind of an embarrassing thing to be arguing about, to tell Jesus that we were talking about which one of us is the best. And so they don't, they, they don't want to answer. Now, again, it's, it, I think it's interestingly, and I think Mark includes uh, this passage talking about their arguing right after he talks about Jesus giving his own life to show to us the absurdity of what the disciples are doing here. Right, right after Jesus says he is going to give his life, he is going to lay down his life for others in the most humiliating way, way, humiliating way possible, the most horrific way possible. Now the disciples are talking about who the greatest is going to be, right? To show us how crazy this is. It kind of reminds me of the story of Muhammad Ali, right? Sting, uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The self-proclaimed greatest boxer of all, the, of all time. Many people say he is the greatest boxer of all time. Uh, there's a story where one time he was on an airplane and he's sitting in first class. And before they can take off, you know, you have to put your seatbelt on. And so everyone's putting their seatbelt on, but he doesn't. And so the stewardess walks up to Muhammad Ali and says, sir, uh, can you please put on your seatbelt uh, so that we can take the plane, so the plane can take off? To which Muhammad Ali responds to her by saying, uh, uh, he says, Muhammad Ali, or sorry, not Muhammad Ali, he says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> to which she responds to him by saying, well, Superman don't need no airplane to fly either. <laughs> right? Now, I, to be fair to him, I don't know if that actually happened, but it shows the absurdity of thinking how great you are, but yet you still need an airplane. You are not Superman. And the disciples here are arguing about how great they are when Jesus has just talked about how he is going to lay down his life for them. And so as we read this passage, I think it's wise for us to sit back and consider and ask ourselves this same question. And that is, what does it take to be great in the kingdom of God? The disciples are talking about being great, and Jesus is going to answer them in a second because, of course, he knows what they were arguing about. But they're arguing about all these things. And, and for us, we might think of proximity to Jesus, how close you are to Jesus, or knowledge of Scripture, how much Bible you know, or your status in society, or how many things you've done and to prop yourself up to look good in front of all the pe other people. These are probably the things the disciples were arguing about, well, I've served Jesus in this way, and I've given up more than you have to follow him, and I know more about the Hebrew Bible. I have it more memorized than you have, and here are all the things that I have done. They're probably arguing about what greatness looks like. And so for us, Jesus here is going to rebuke them in a second, and so we should consider to ourselves, what are the things that you and I assume that if we do, makes us awesome in God's kingdom? 
right? Is it knowing a lot of the Bible? Is it coming to church every Sunday? Is it giving a lot of money? Or in the world's eyes, what does it take to be great? Influence, authority, status, money, right? Maybe having a job where you don't have a boss, where you can work for yourself, like all these things that we achieve or we strive for. And not necessarily that these things are bad in and of themselves, but they're talking about being great. And so we should ask, according to God, what does greatness actually look like? What does it look like? Well, here's what Jesus says, verse 35. It says, sitting, or sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Now, sitting down is significant because it's officially like saying, hey, I'm going to teach you something. So this is no longer just a conversation of what you guys are talking about. He's officially calling them together and telling them, here's something I want to teach you. Here is your next lesson. And he's going to tell them what, it, what greatness looks like in God's kingdom. Now, notice something really important here, that Jesus does not chastise them for wanting to be great. He doesn't say that their desires are wrong at all. Instead, what he wants to do is he wants to rather define for them what greatness actually looks like, right? What honor in God's kingdom actually looks like. There is nothing wrong with wanting to achieve and wanting to, or rather wanting to do the things that are good in God's kingdom. The question is, what does it actually take and what does it actually look like, right? The challenge is you want to be great, fine. What does greatness in God's kingdom look like? And what Jesus says here, what he has said in the past after his first passion prediction and what he's going to say one more time later in Mark is that there is nothing greater than giving and serving. There is nothing greater than than seeing other people as greater than yourself and laying down your ambitions and your desires for the good of others. But of course, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do when he gets to Jerusalem. This is not just like, hey, this, is, this sounds really great that I'm actually going to demonstrate it in a way that none of you can actually even think or imagine that he's actually going to do it. Now, for us, I think we, we, not I think, I know we lose some of the significance of what's going on here. Because again, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know the Bible, even if you don't, kind of a culture that's been so heavily influenced by Christianity and by scripture, like serving for us is like an ideal. Not that we always do it, but in our culture today, like people are like serving is a good thing. Whether or not you do it, it's like something that we should aspire to, right? Uh, and so in this culture, in an ancient culture, when, when the vast majority of people were just trying to survive, right? No bank accounts, no health insurance, uh, none of these things. That you're just trying to survive. This idea of doing things for other people and, and before yourself, before your own survival was a radical concept. But it's interesting, as I was thinking about this, even in our culture where we think service is a good thing, we still at the same time want to be great. Like, so for example, one of the big catchphrases in leadership and leadership books uh, nowadays is what? Servant leadership. Now, there's nothing wrong with that I get if you're like leading a company or if you're leading or a boss, or a manager in your job, and you are a leader, of course you want to serve. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's a popular phrase. It's in all the leadership books, but it it still shows us, I think, our desire to be great, because what you don't see is books about just service. There's a leadership attack. Like, we, we want to serve, but we also want people to know, like, hey, we're in charge here, right? Like, we've got some authority. We have some influence. It's never just service, because even in our culture, we want to be great, But again, the question for us, if greatness is found in God's kingdom, not by what we want, but by serving, then why don't we, I think it may be helpful for us to consider and think about this question. Did I do anything great this past week? If if greatness is defined by serving and loving and sacrificing and putting other people ahead of yourselves, 
then did, did, did you, did I do anything that Jesus himself would be considered great this past week? Or put another way, uh, did I explicitly go out of my way to do something that inconvenienced me that other people do not know about in order to serve someone else? Did I do that? Now, to encourage you, I actually think the answer for many of you is yes. I actually think it's yes. Maybe not in every situation. Maybe, maybe there are times where you were selfish and you were prideful. But I just know as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is a good chance you actually might have done, not in every situation, but certain things that were great. But then what do we do? We downplay it. Uh, well, I didn't do that much. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that great. And what happens when we do that? We buy into the lie that we have to be amazing, that we have to have influence, that we have to have status, that we have to have money. What Jesus is explicitly saying here is that anytime you care for someone else above yourself, you have done something great. And listen to me, do not let the devil tell you that what you did did not matter. Do not, what is Jesus saying here? That it was Great. And so we must ask ourselves, did I do anything great? Where did I fall short? But not downplay the times that we actually did what Jesus asked us to do. That I want you to be encouraged. Do not assume that what you did does not matter if Jesus, who is God himself, literally says, this is greatness. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And then he continues verse 36 of chapter 9 by saying this, to give a practical example of what this looks like. Says he took a child, had him. Uh, they took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them. So he's teaching his his disciples. Whoever whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name, welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Now, to be understand the context of what is going on here, children in the ancient world um, were viewed differently than they are today, right? And again, in a world where higher infant mortality, uh, in a world where everyone is just trying to survive and there is a great demand for human labor, children were essentially a commodity. Now, I am not at all saying that parents didn't love their kids. I'm sure they, I know they absolutely did. But culturally speaking, today we ask the question, how many kids can I afford to have? <laughs> they ask the question, how many kids could I afford not to have? Because you need people to work the farm, uh, to care for you in your old age. Like, you need bodies. And so, again, it's not that they didn't love their kids, but no parent at all would re rearrange their life around their kids, right? Their kids existed to survive and help the family live. And so because of that, in ancient culture, there's no child protective services. Uh, there's no kids programs. There's none of these things. It's all about the, the children themselves have no rights and no privileges until they become an adult. They are essentially property viewed legally as property of the parents, right? So caring, again, what Jesus is saying is a child like this, again, it's not that they didn't love their kids, but that's just how culturally it worked, that if you take a kid like this and you care for this child who has no status, has no influence, and cannot pay you back in any way, this is like caring for me, right? Or put another way, from this example with the child, what Jesus is saying is that greatness is not found in what you accomplish, but in how you serve. According to Jesus, God himself, greatness in the kingdom of God is not found in what you accomplish, but how you serve. And so again, in our mind, we, we, we might think things like, well, I'm not up there preaching the Bible, or I'm not influencing a lot of people, or I'm not giving millions of dollars away, and so what I'm doing doesn't matter. 
That is not at all what Jesus says. And look, look, look right at me. Here's the good news. This is not some pep rally, rah-rah speech, you're amazing, that anybody can do this. This is literally the truth. Right? This, we're not saying this to make you feel good about yourself. We're saying this because Jesus is saying no matter who you are, what you've done, how much money you have, how much influence you have, what your job is, where you live, you can be great in my kingdom. Or put another way, anyone can be great in the kingdom of God. Anyone can be great in the kingdom of God. This should encourage us, and we should not downplay what the Lord himself has told us to be true. And so, as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing the sermon, I was like, man, what is something that anybody, if we, no matter who you are, if you tried to do it, you could be good at? Like, I'm trying to think of, I need to illustrate this point that anybody can be great in God's kingdom. What is one thing that all of us could do if we tried really hard, I think all of us could do? And then it hit me. Writing lyrics to a pop song. Now, you may say, Dylan, I'm not musical. Dylan, I'm not good with words. Dylan, I can't write a poem. And I hear you. And so I thought it might be fun to illustrate this point to just read to you some lyrics from a couple of really popular songs, okay? I'm not going to sing them. I'm not going to do any rhythm. I'm just going to read them. And I will ask you to consider, could I have written this, okay? Audience participation is welcome. Okay, so here's the first one. Maybe you know this song. And I quote, now what's cooler than being cool? I can't hear you. I say, what's cooler than being cool? And I quote, all right, 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 all right. Okay, now ladies. I, can you do 15 hours? I don't know, right? Later, on, later on, on in the song, it says, and I quote, shake it, 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 shake it like a Polaroid picture. Hey, yeah. Shake it, 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 sugar. Shake it like a Polaroid picture. Could you do that? Maybe. Should we do another one? Okay. Again, this is all in one setting, and I quote, I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good, good night, a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good, good night, a feeling, woo-hoo, that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good night, that tonight's going to be a good, good night, a feeling. Woo-hoo. That tonight's going to be a good night. That tonight's going to be a good night. That tonight's going to be a good, good... Could you do that? Later on in the song, no exaggeration, I quote, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. That's like my echo. Let's do it. Okay, so start over. Let's do it, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Let's do it and do it, do it and do it. Let's live it up and do it. Do it, and do it, and do it, and do it, do it, do it, and do it. Let's do it, and do it, let's do it, and do it, let's do it, do it. Hey, do it, hey, do it, hey, do it. Can you do it? I don't know, I don't know. What are we doing? I'll do one more. Here's the last one. This one might be a little bit harder. Again, I'm not adding, this is what it says. And I quote, 
And I know, 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 I know. Hey, I ought to leave that young thing alone, but ain't no sunshine when she's gone. Whoa, whoa. Can you do that? I don't know, right? Now I get it. There's probably other things going on there. But I think this illustrates the point that anybody can do what Jesus is asking, okay? So the next time you hear, shake it like a Polaroid picture. Just know you can do what God is asking you to do, right? And of course, that's funny. That's lighthearted. But I say that to say this is, this is true, that our Lord himself is telling us and is inviting us that no matter who you are, what you've done, what's happened to you, where you live, your gender, your age, your socioeconomic status, your influence, your job, you can be great in God's kingdom. And this is how you do it. And then, it's hap- and then here's what happens next. Verse 38 says this of chapter 9. John said to him, so one of Jesus' closest disciples, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So what's happening here? Jesus, John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is now telling Jesus a story about a man that they have seen recently performing miracles or trying to perform miracles in the name of Jesus. But he's not a disciple or close follower of Jesus. Now, the context for what is happening here for us to understand that we likely would say something similar to John is that we don't know whether or not this person John is referring to is a follower of Jesus or not. Um, And why this matters is because in many ancient cultures, you would have people who would go around to towns and villages and they would try to collect money and do by doing miracles or by performing magic or trying to perform healings of these sorts of things. And what would often happen if you were one of these traveling religious people is that you would call on the local deities so that the people in those towns and communities would give you more credibility. And so for all John knows, maybe this person is also trying to profit off the name of Jesus. So again, this is an understandable concern, but I think again, knowing what Jesus has just said, I think Mark is trying to show us the irony of the statement because, I, because the ironic thing is, it's not about following us. It's not about being part of the in crowd of the disciples. It's about following Jesus. If he had said, but he's not following you, That would make a lot more sense given the context that he's not following us, that he is not one of us. So how dare he do that? And then Jesus has a pretty surprising response in verse 39. Jesus says this, don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. So again, in a surprising response, Jesus does not condemn this man, even if he does have bad motives. Maybe he does. He doesn't condemn him. Why? Because those who saw what was going on and this man himself would would not be able to speak against Jesus later if they've seen the power that Jesus in his name provides. And so I just, for our context, I want to say this. Of course, proper devotion towards the Lord matters and following him and honoring him matters. But I think it's also a lesson for us not to assume that different churches or different ministries or different traditions and these sorts of things are bad just because they are different. There's nothing wrong with having a preference. There's nothing wrong being part of a church community that you really appreciate. Hopefully that's how many of you feel about New City, but it's not better. And it reminds us to think of two things. Number one, 
One is because we all have blind spots, right? All of us have things in our lives that do not honor God. We are not perfect, and so we shouldn't look at, down at others because, just because they are not perfect. And two, that God uses all of us in spite of us, right? Even the disciples, they were just arguing about who is the best, completely missing the point of what Jesus is trying to teach them. And he doesn't throw them out. He doesn't say, how dare you? He doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to bring in the replacements. He still uses them in spite of them. And it's the same for true for you and for me, that all of us have blind spots and all of us fall short. And so we should have charity towards one another because in spite of all those things, he still invites us like he invites the disciples to follow him. And then in verse 41, the last thing we'll read this morning, or last part of Mark, it says this, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, um, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Again, his point here is that even the smallest deeds are rewarded and matter in the kingdom of God. So much as going out of your way to bring someone a water bottle. That's significant. And that God cares about that. That the God who came to earth in the form of a man, not because he has to or he needed anything from us, just because he loves us, is inviting us to follow his example, to love other people so that they might experience the kingdom of God just like the disciples have and just like you have and I have. And so what I want to do is I want to close by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, to show us the ultimate example of what Christ did and how he is the example. He is the one who didn't just come down to say, do good things, and then floated back up into heaven and said, you better do them or else. That he came down, not because he needed to, but simply because he wanted to, to live this out for us so that we might experience his grace. Here's what Philippians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Having this same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, right? Following what the command of our Lord says in Mark 9, he says this, verse 3, do, not, do nothing out of salvation or selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Even everyone should look out not only for his interests, but also for the interests of others. Or put another way, verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And what did our Lord do? Verse 6, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus left his throne in heaven to come to the brokenness of earth. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So the good news of the gospel is that Christ came to do for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves, that he came to empty himself, to live a perfect life, to demonstrate his power and his glory, and that he died the death that you and I deserve to die so that anyone who would choose to follow him to repent of their sins and acknowledge the fact that they're broken can experience the grace and mercy of God. And so when we go out and love people and we serve people, it's not for what we can get. It's not to make us, ourselves feel better. And it's not for God to love us more. God showed us his unconditional love by sending Jesus to come and die for us, as it says in Romans, while we were still 
sinners. And so it is in response to the grace that we have received that we go and live in a way that is worthy and honorable of our Lord so that we might reap the benefits of being great in his kingdom. Or put another way, we'll close with this, that greatness is found in service, not success. What Jesus is telling us here, that if you want to be great, listen, that's a good thing. All of us should want to be great. And it's not about doing a bunch of things, not about looking good. It's not about your own resume. It's about how you have put others before yourself, how you have gone out of your way to inconvenience others, not for your own accolades, to make yourself feel good, but simply so other people can experience the grace and kindness of Christ in their life, the way that you and I have experienced it in ours. Or maybe leave with this question to put it practically for us today as we go. Uh, What is one thing I can do to be great this week? That's the question. What is God calling and inviting me to do? Who, who, my coworkers, a family member, a situation that I'm going to walk into this week, what what does it look like for me to be proactively intentional to be great so that other people might experience God's love in their life?